How's that? It's registering now. Good. Yeah. Well, you were on a roll, so I thought we'd record it. <laughs> Alrighty. You want to get right on top of the mic, though. Yeah. So, give me just a moment to arrange things, and then we can actually, like, get started started. That's fine. Yeah. I don't know where you've got your paperwork and all. Yeah. Is it here? Yes, that would be it. Is that for this show or your other show? That's for this show. Okay. Yeah. And it's a-okay with the cough. It's not as if the listeners expect that we never get colds. But I don't have a cold. Just allergies. And I'm going to stick by that story, too. Today on the Play Ed podcast, we discuss newly released board game Ancient Civilizations of the Inner Sea. And be sure to stay tuned afterwards for an exclusive preview of our interview with the developers. Welcome to the Play Ed Podcast, where we explore cultivating connections through play. Hello and welcome to the Play Ed Podcast. I'm your host, Laura. And I'm Chris. And we are here today to explore cultivating connections through play. Before we dive into today's topic, I wanted to remind our listeners that if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcatcher uh, that allows for rate and review, please leave us a review. It does help listeners find us and bumps us up the rankings so we're easier to discover. And with that covered, I wanted to dive in to today's topic we are exploring a very recently published game. We teased it a couple weeks back on our Omnibus Roman History episode. We today are going to be talking about Ancient Civilizations of the Inner Sea, published by GMT Games. I love this game. I, 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 I absolutely love this game. Um, the components are beautiful. The... Rule book and scenario book are among the clearest I've ever seen. The gameplay is fun and unpredictable, and there are a lot of little elements that that go into making for a really, really delightful play experience. And we had the pleasure of talking with the game designers and the developer and the the interview um, that we had with them will be part of of this series talking about ACIS ancient civilizations of the inner sea mm -hmm. going back to what first got me into gaming um, and was a huge part of my middle school education as I discovered ancient civilizations in the first place um, Bronze Age, Greece, and um, uh, Ancient Rome, and so forth, was that Avalon Hill Civilization game. And I discovered it about the same time that the Sid Meier put out the first Civilization video game, uh, which I remember playing in like black and white and grayscale. So it had different patterns for the different what would be different colors in the color version of the game. It was different patterns. Like there was the gray bubble and there was the cross hatch and there was the like the little triangles. Yeah, I hadn't seen that one. Mm. I think I think Civ 2 was when I first started playing. And I didn't have the game. My neighbors across the street did. And so we'd go across the street and watch as our little ship 
opened things up and it's like, ooh, there's good <laughs> land here. We can make a settlement. So um, we had a, a wonderful conversation with them that, that will be part of it. But we want to start by giving our listeners who may not be familiar with the game uh, just an overview of the game, the components, um, some aspects of play. And for what it's worth, I suspect that given just how recently this game came out, very few of our listeners are going to be truly familiar with it, with the exception of if we've got listening in a couple of the folks within the playtesting community. Um, we only got this a couple weeks ago, and it was one of the most exciting days. When we opened up the box, the f- thing that first struck me is how beautiful it is. The they, they really went all out with the board art and the, the game pieces. Um, and so visually, it is a treat. But the most beautiful thing actually is going through the rule book. Now, to my mind, rule books are like recipes. Theoretically, if well laid out, you should be able to start at the beginning, go through to the end, and know what you're doing, even if you are unfamiliar. And what I have found in the past is just as you have occasional recipes that don't mention certain details with enough detail for the inexperienced baker, there are rule sets that I've gone through where it isn't terribly clear to the inexperienced gamer um, how to handle certain situations. Whether it's setup or some nuance of play or even a major movement of gameplay. Um, and so the, 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 the rules and the layout are really fantastic, and that's the work of Chad Jensen, um, who's, a, who's a fantastic designer in his own right. Um, but um, the, the... Little things like the note that when, when there is a dispute between what is on a, one of the game cards and any of the other game mechanics, the card wins. The card will be what you rule the game by. And that, that element of helping you help with resolving things that appear to be at odds is an element of clarity that I appreciate on my end. Because as you all know, if you've listened to other episodes, I have had some epic game fails where I missed a fine detail of game rules. I'm still amused with the monster trap uh, event. That, that That was a disaster. But I learned from it. Read through the rules first. And the rule book, um, does have, uh, Probably about 10 pages worth of it are actual rules, but large, large portions of the book are pictures. And the pictures make it very easy to see how to lay out the game board, what the purpose of the tiles are, so that as you're setting it out for your players, you've got a very clear idea of what you ought to be seeing. Um, But why don't we run through what you get when you open the box? Sure. Um, There is a two-piece game board. Uh, it's it's a mounted game board, uh, and it lays out essentially the area of the Mediterranean Sea and the surrounding territory. So you have um, North Africa, uh, essentially from Mauritania and um, uh, Tingitania, which is where the, um, uh, we call them Gibraltar now, but it's where the southern half of the, the pillars of Her- uh, Heracles in the ancient world were running all the way eastbound across the North African coast, including um, what we would now call Libya and um, Egypt, uh, north along the Levantine shore uh, with ancient Phoenicia. Uh, you've got part of 
the um, Anatolian Peninsula, the um, Aegean Archipelago, uh, mainland Greece and Macedon, uh, into a little bit of the Balkans, um, the peninsula of the boot of Italy, uh, Gaul, uh, so modern France, and then down into the Iberian Peninsula, uh, which would be modern Spain and Portugal. Um, you've got the major islands up in there, the Bielorix, um, Sicily, uh, Crete, uh, Cyprus, and... Um, it, it's 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 a long rectangular board, plenty of room for the game pieces, and plenty of room around the board is needed for the various uh, players. It's got a solitaire system that is not flowchart driven. It's got a, um, a deck of cards. Um, it's got a whole bag full of very brightly colored wooden discs, uh, along with a few wooden cubes and a sticker sheet. It's got some player assistance mats and reference cards. And, and there's actually two kinds. One of the cards is devoted to is uniform. Each player gets that, and that has the the order of play. The gameplay has several se uh, sequences that occur within a turn. And the card lays it out so that you can clearly follow along in what order things should be occurring with page number references to the rule book so that if you are unclear about any of the rules, it's really easy to flip back and get your clarification on what's what you need to do next. And there's, then there's also a playbook that is 60 pages of scenarios, some of which have variations on the core rules and. Um, there's instructions, several pages of instructions for how to play solitaire or how to modify and develop your own scenarios. There's also a very, very lovely uh, walkthrough of some different, um, uh, there's a great example of play that is also lavishly illustrated. Um, I, I just, this is, this is a game that is going to keep on giving. Yes. Um, and then, as I was mentioning, the other player card that's available, there are 10 civilizations that are playable within the game, although only six will ever be active on the board at one time. At um, most. At most. Um, that way, you have the opportunity to have multiple variations on the game, even within the most broad version of what you have available, simply because each civilization has different advantages that come with playing that civilization. So if you're familiar with the um, Sid Meier Civilization series of video games, um, each civilization in those, whether it's um, Rome or the Gauls or um, uh, the the um, um, Brennus of the Celts is one in Civ 4. Civ 4 is the most recent one I've played regularly um, with with the Warlords and Beyond the Sword expansion. But each of those civilizations has some strengths and some some um, uh, special units. The same kind of concept applies here in ACIS. Uh, and that's in contrast to Avalon Hill's Venerable Civilization and Advanced Civilization games, where each of the civs, aside from the color they're assigned, is completely fungible. Mm-hmm. 
And what I like is that it gives some variety that it makes a difference to choose Rome versus Mycenae based on how much you view that civilization's advantage as something that you value in your gameplay. Egypt versus Phoenicia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so from in terms of pieces, there's a lot of them to look at, but they all have a very clear part in the game. Now, as far as how to actually play the game, I'm going to put a link in show notes. There is a video published that one of the designers put together. Mark McLaughlin. That is very clear. It shows one of the um, earlier versions of the map as it was in development, but otherwise the game itself is perfectly clear to look at. uh, That lays out how gameplay goes from phase to phase within a turn. Um, So in terms of how to actually play the game, I'm going to highly recommend that video for explaining and understanding the rules. But the mechanics themselves are very simple. It looks a little overwhelming at first if you're unfamiliar with playing a game that's got multiple phases within a turn. But once you have those phases explained as to how they run, it moves very smoothly. And the thing that I would recommend for anyone who's new to that is watch through that video and then just do a slow walkthrough, not playing to win or do the thing, but just to get that feel for the mechanics. Uh, they are still working on getting the, uh, the Vassal module ready for prime time, so that's not yet available, but will be eventually. Um, Sooner rather than later. Um, but for in terms of actual gameplay, the thing that I find most interesting is how much of it is driven by the cards. This is not a game where you're having dice tell you what happens. The cards provide a lot of the uh, the action of the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and through multiple ways, they have actual they have their effects, which is one way that they work. And those effects have um, impact throughout different phases. But what's also interesting is that in most of the cards, there are these little numbers on them uh, that act a little like a percentile die in various games where they can also be used to resolve other elements of the game. So they've got... So to be clear, there are no dice and no dice rolls um, and no tables or charts to consult in order to resolve things like conflict. The cards and the player's card that explains the order of play make everything very clear and upfront. So what kind of content knowledge and skills can a game like Ancient Civilizations of the Inner Sea promote what could it help our listeners well i think the first thing that i would think of um from content knowledge is there is a delightful rule in this game called the aeneas rule and when i was looking through this was one of the first things that delighted me first because my oldest son right now is plowing through the aeneid for one of his classes um so it's very much on the top of our mind at the moment But the Aeneas rule is basically a rule that allows a player that's pretty much in last place and solidly in last, looks like he's about to be wiped out, pick up and start over elsewhere on the board strongly. Um, So one, I'm looking at an overall gameplay perspective. You've got the opportunity for the tables to be turned and people to come back from seemingly nothing 
which is a wonderful rule to have in place for game balance and for game fun. You don't have someone wiped out early and then they have to go off and figure out how to entertain themselves for the next couple hours. Exactly. But the other thing is, it's the Aeneas rule. It's named after a character in one of the great epics. And if one of the things you're trying to do is get the sense of what kind of story the Aeneid is... It's the story of a man whose civilization is functionally wiped out, Mm -hmm. picking up and sailing off to find somewhere new and ultimately being the seed of another great empire. Yeah. And that element in the game gives you a touchstone to that story. And there's lots of those cases. Many of the cards are referencing actual historic events and you can see how something like an earthquake or a volcano has an effect on a civilization. Um, There are um, cards like sea peoples. Who on earth are these sea peoples? (laughs) And everyone's got a different answer. So you've got lots of ins into discussing history and it is a game that is driven by history and a love of history. So you've got the Mediterranean geography You've got a historical sweep of the last, say, 3000 BC down to about 500 AD. And there are scenarios that touch on all of the sort of major highlights of Mediterranean activity during that time. Um, You've got an, an incredible amount of detail, attention to detail, in the scenario setups. You can use the pieces as as supplied with the game to just kind of walk through what did happen mm-hmm. and you've got tangible pieces on the board which is one of the things we used to do with with avalon hill Civ when i was um in middle school is you know what did happen um and then you can also play through the scenarios in a kind of well what what's an alternative way this could have gone down if things had happened differently and you can start spinning out those stories it's an incredibly social game um, it's, it's, it really facilitates that and encourages that and supports that. So it's, it's really impressive. Something it, it doesn't have that a lot of games of this type do is a technology tree. Um, and, um, as, as, as comes up in the course of the interview that, that, that we'll include with, with this series of podcasts, um, that was an intentional design choice to exclude a technology tree. Um, technology plays a role, but it's a much more subtle one, which is in keeping with what we seem to see of the, the historical record and the archaeological evidence. Rarely does a civilization have a technological edge and maintain it over the long term. It's clearly a game that is the fruit of a lifetime, several lifetimes of loving this this period and this region and wanting to learn more about it and synthesizing what was learned um uh the 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 men who developed this game are absolutely at the top of their field and and it's the fruit of a lifetime of game design as well um absolutely and it's and as i said it's a game that has so many possible permutations if you're listening to us and wondering, where do I start? This would be the game to start with. If you have one Ancients game, and only one, in your whole, you know, you, you've only got a few games, you want to keep it small because you don't have the space or whatever, 
I would say ACIS is going to be the one, um, even of all the ones we've, we've, we have talked about and are likely to talk about over the next several months, it's the one that's going to have the most flexibility and replay value and cover the broadest scope of historical and geographical content and provoke the most discussions and hopefully inspire the most follow-up reading uh, in your students, uh, your children, and, and I would hope in yourself. Mm-hmm. And then moving on to skills, I think one of the things that really struck me, particularly as we were conversing with um, the designers and developer, um, was the social aspect of the game. And we have repeatedly noted that as important as it is to figure out what is a game doing on that that education end from a sort of content area, there's also the fact that the connection that you make gaming with with kids is something far bigger than whether or not they can remember who Aeneas was. Although they will not forget it with this game. Right. <laughs> um, uh the, 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 they mention, you know, playing with their children who are adults now and playing with grandchildren and that the connections built over the years of playing and play testing with their own children have now blossomed into those people playing with other people, the kids' friends being involved in playing games. And we're seeing that with our own children and, and hope that you would see that with yours as you start playing more games that, that there's something about being able to sit around a board game table, sitting around a table with a board game, card games, like we were doing earlier with some of our, our neighbors, um, and just be able to spend a few hours playing a game and talking about the game, non-game stuff, movies, culture, all, all the, the basic human interactions are reinforced and those bonds are forged. Uh, that last a lifetime. I still remember very fondly in high school going over to a friend of mine's house and his dad was a warrant officer in the army and more or less designed war game scenarios for a living. Mm -hmm. But when we were there, he'd, you know, grill stuff on the grill and he'd have sodas chilled down for us, and we'd sit down and we'd play Axis and Allies or Warhammer 40K with all the minis. And, you know, John's dad could kick our butts six ways from Sunday. It didn't matter how we handicapped his starting position, but he could always come from whatever handicap we placed on his start, and he could dominate the board. Mm -hmm. And... It was, it was instructive and it was memorable. And I mean, we, we were high school students. We didn't really have anything in common with John's dad. He didn't need to have anything to do with us. But he enjoyed gaming enough that that's what he did for a living. And even doing that for a living, he also turned around and spend some time gaming with us. And that helped forge our group in high school into a self-sufficient unit. And we managed to keep each other out of a lot of trouble that we otherwise would have gotten into. We grew apart after high school, but some friendships are for a season. But the fact is I can still remember those connections and the role they played when I was, you know, a moody and fr- sometimes frustrated adolescent. And what a, what a, blessing that was to have those friendships Mm -hmm. 
And I think from a sort of longer term thing, the fact that you've got this thing that allows parents and children to both have time together in the moment and build a, a connection of something that they love doing together that lasts, that that means that, as I've said, a family is more than some than a group of people that all live in the same building. Yeah. And what allows you to to help forge that relationship and have something in common with each other, games build that that possibility. And with con- gaming conventions, you'll see this, where you'll see many generations of players yes. and watching the younger players, the 10 and 12-year-olds coming in with their parents, their grandparents, and you realize that's how you have a community. You have people that play together, that share a love of something in common and forge those bonds. And and that those bonds are not something to be viewed as a, a nice side effect. To some degree, that's almost the point of the game. And having fun. Yeah. You, you absolutely cannot under, underestimate the value of having fun. Because um, if it's not fun, why are you doing it? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, games... Games can be challenging. Games can be frustrating. Family life is challenging. Family life is frustrating. Um, raising kids is challenging and frustrating, as as a lot of our listeners are well aware. Um, the the upside to all of that is there's got to be some positive experiences, and one of the best ways to have a positive experience is, is to have fun playing games. Mm-hmm. And this is definitely a game that has that opportunity. Um, there are opportunities within the game with the cards that you don't necessarily have to play bad cards. They can be used in a number of ways. They or cards that have negative, negative negative effects. effects. They're, they're good cards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, one of the things that's very interesting <clears throat> about this game, um, and it gets emphasized again in our interview, is the game can be played as a war game. It can be played very much as, you know, Build your, you know, build your territory and fight with the other guy. But it doesn't have to be viewed that way. Uh, there are other approaches, what's sometimes called a Euro game approach, um, that if you're working with a, a group of players that have a much more casual approach that are interested in more sort of building up than building out, it supports that. And if you've got a bunch of cards with negative effects, they can be used for other things other than a kind of beggar your neighbor, let right. me see how I can get that guy kind of thing. You can bluff with your cards. You can you can threaten that you're going to use a volcano if your neighbor decides that he wants to use an earthquake on you. Um, and that element of, of negotiation, of back and forth, you've got different play styles that it's going to accommodate with the ultimate end being having a good time with each other, fostering that social interaction, which cannot be underestimated as, as you know, a benefit. And it makes us more connected to each other. Uh, and frequently the question is, how do you help kids associate with people other than their, you know, one to two year peer group? That's how mm-hmm. you play around a table with a group of people and you see what you can do with, with the game. Um, and then I think the last thing was, is that because you've got different ele- ways to play the game, there's, there's elements again of, of that, of strategy, of thinking ahead, of looking at that card and saying, what can I do with this? Does it make more sense to use this discard to save me from, uh, losing discs on the board? 
um, does it make sense to use this and possibly have my, my neighbor now decide that suddenly we're at war? As with all the strategy games that we talk about, there's a huge element of you're practicing strategic and tactical thinking. And that's really the only way to get better at it. Mm-hmm. Get to a point where you're doing it frequently enough, where your child is doing it frequently enough, that they experiment. Mm-hmm. They might focus on, they want to do this one thing in the game, whether or not that's in alignment with the game's designed victory conditions. That's fine. Oh, yeah. That's that's fantastic because then they are willing to make certain decisions in pursuit of a strategic objective. And if they achieve the objective, they, they have defined a victory condition for themselves. Yeah. And if they fail to achieve the objective, they have the experience of, what did I of being able to do that kind of post mortem where you analyze what decisions could I have done differently for better or for worse and there's there's no way to teach critical thinking through a lecture class or a workbook you can only learn critical thinking by doing it and so a a good teacher can help lead someone to critical thinking by demonstrating it by providing questions so that you can interrogate the text you're reading or the lecture you're hearing or evaluate the situation you're in. But until you are doing those evaluations on your own and you internalize how to do that, it's always going to be an external activity. Yeah. If you want children to grow into adults who can think critically who can manage scarce resources who can make good decisions in a pinch who can pick themselves up from incredible setbacks and like aeneas take the ashes take their gods the gods of his polis from the ashes of his city and his father on his back and his son at his side and from that setback go forth and found a new country, well, why wouldn't you want your kids to be able to do that? Mm -hmm. That, Again, you can't teach resilience in a lecture, but you can give them the opportunity to say... To practice it. To practice and say... All right, so this round, the Sea Peoples came out and we're... Wiped out the board. (laughs) Where are we going from here? (laughs) Yeah. And, and Which is more or less what they did historically, as far as anybody can tell. Yeah. And that recognition of all of that bouncing back from setbacks, you only learn it by experiencing it. And the cost of having a setback in a board game is a lot less than the real life setbacks you experience. A board game around a table of friends. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, that, that, that can't be stressed enough, in my opinion. Um, Gaming with family really is a safe space. It's a place where you can learn to respond to that with people who you're having fun with, who you know and trust. And that way, once you start experiencing those setbacks in in the wider world, you've started to learn how to be resilient and bounce back. When, when your tantrum might have bigger consequences, you've learned to get beyond the tantrum as the first response to that setback. Yeah. Um, I still, I can't get over how gorgeous those cards are. Yeah, I, I keep, I'm, I'm, we're sitting here talking into the microphone and I, I'm thumbing through the book and just drooling over how beautiful it is looking at the card art. 
Um, it, it's it's just it, it's a stunningly beautiful game. Um, beautifully designed, beautiful in, in in the way its play mechanics work and its elegance. Beautiful in the way that the everything is laid out so that you can read through, and just lovely to look at. So recommended age. So that's an interesting one. As we've noted before, we do our adaptations where we'll team up adults with youngest players uh, with some of these games that really aren't meant for five-year-olds. Yes, yes. A lot of them that, that I play, that we play with the, with the kids, the youngest want to join in, but they're just not at a point where they can. We were playing one earlier today um, where, you know, not being able to read the cards, the littlest ones who still are illiterate, um, they weren't able to, they, they, but they wanted to play. So we could tell them what was on the card and they could make a decision in the game and put it where it needed to be on the board. Um, but for something like this, as far as the play testing went, there was a uh, incident I'll let Mark tell that story in the interview. I don't want to steal his thunder. It's I don't a great want to, story. Especially since he tells it way better than I ever could. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but suffice it to say, um, your middle school age students, you're, you're... Should be able to understand and follow it. Um, middle school and older, definitely high school, college age, young adult, um, friends up the street. Um, it can, it can play, as we said earlier, kind of like a Euro game where the focus is on building and, and there, there will be some conflict that's inevitable given the nature of the game, but it doesn't have to be a died in the wool, build your army, steamroll your neighbor kind of war game. Um, but as far as younger players, uh, being able to read is definitely going to be a strong point. Um, it, it, it is... For, for all that it's it's beautifully illustrated and very user-friendly, it does require some facility with with uh, and command of English. So I would I would not go much younger than middle school, uh, at least until you are very, very comfortable with the game. And um, you know, as we play it with our kids, we'll make some notes as to what adaptations are we making to bring the the the, the younger ones mm -hmm. uh, into the gameplay. But it's designed mm -hmm. to be on the simpler end, the more entry-level uh, game for this market. Um, but yeah, this is... It's definitely a game that is going to be accessible to players what, with middle school onward. Because once you... In terms of content, in terms of theme, in terms of the way the rules work, um, uh, I think Mark mentioned that he basically summarized the rules in just under five minutes at a convention where he was playtesting it. And um, that, and then they, they, they had a fantastic game. So the, the games can be encapsulated simply. The, the game rules can be encapsulated simply, explained, followed... It's, it's, I, I can't get over this game. I can just keep gushing about it. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I like a lot of games. There there are a lot of different games I like. I, I keep finding new ones. I'm like, oh, we got to talk about that one too and that one. I, I can't get over just how, how, how exciting this is over and above just about every other game I've, I've dealt with, played, encountered mm -hmm. uh, over the last several years. Yeah. 
as far as far as other things to keep it in the fun zone um one of the things to keep in mind is that because it's got some flexibility in terms of how you approach it think about what your kids enjoy if you've got ones that enjoy war games that enjoy the competition if you've got that competitive edge allow it to run that way yeah but if you've got ones that you know they don't like being mean or they've got a or they get easily hurt one be prepared to help them through those those segments when disaster strikes mm-hmm. um, and also recognize that you can help them see that there's other ways to play the game right that there are ways that you can build your civilization without really having to attack anyone else and still have some pretty impressive things happen. Yeah, if you're focused, if you want to start from the, if you want to take that begin with the end in mind, the the goal of the game is accumulate victory points. The rules very clearly lay out the ways you can, the things you can do that will accrue victory points and allow you to accumulate them. So you ultimately can, if you look, if you want to look to ancient history, some civilizations become dominant because they have a strong army or a strong navy. And then there's others like Egypt that managed to go strong for nearly 3,000 years having a good river. Yeah. And a good river and borders that were hard to pass made it an incredibly strong and consistent culture for probably longer than just about any other um, political entity that occurred in that world. And the game reflects that. You can build your civilization without ever doing a whole lot of neighboring competition you can go for your victory points in different ways yeah and that that flexibility means that you've got different ways to approach the game you've got different ways and the replayability because of that is huge right um from choosing different uh civilizations to playing the numerous scenarios and the fact that you can also tailor scenarios to your own situation so if you're deciding to integrate this into a history class you can choose the scenarios that focus on the areas that you want to to study. It's also got the option, if you have fewer than six players, of having um, the other players be automated through the way the rules are structured so that they remain competitive on the board. Um, yeah, I, I just... It, it's... And actually, it struck me that if you're playing a game and you've got two or three people there, having that that non-player character involved helps to, to deal with that sense of competition that it's a little less hurt if it's not, you know, your brother who decided to attack you. It's it's Gaul, and Gaul's being played by the, the solitaire bot, but yeah. it's, it's in there. And that helps you realize it's not necessarily personal. Right. Which, which is something we run into with, with our, our boys in particular, is that there, there, will, there will end up being inevitably some kind of, oh, you know, he's being mean, blah, 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 and okay, well, you know, either fight back or get over it, but, um, and, and usually it's, it's, on, it's on the petty side of things, but again, learning to deal with that mm-hmm. as children um, allows you to keep things in perspective as you get older. Yeah. Um, I think the thing that struck me most, and, and I can't wait to share the interview with our listeners, um, the thing that struck me most was that that we summed it up that it's got to be about fun. Um, and this game 
has the potential for so much fun. Mm-hmm. So I think that probably wraps it up. We'll uh, go ahead and please stay tuned over the next couple of weeks. We're going to be having um, the the interview. Um, we'll do the interview. We'll do some in-depth play reports. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, if you can, uh, go out to GMT's website and get yourself a copy of the game uh, while they've got them in stock. Uh, it's 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 one well worth having. And if you're just looking for a place to start, um, this would be a really, really good one. The elegance of the design, the beauty of the components, uh, the clarity of the rules. And like I said, we've got ambitious plans for our for for this year's study of Rome. But if we have to cut back and simplify, I think that this one could probably achieve most of what we would want to all in one starting place. Yeah, I mean, I, I I absolutely don't want to denigrate any of the other games we intend to cover or have covered. Um, they all have their strengths. Um, and and there's, there's always a risk with a new game. It's, oh, this is the new hotness this month. But um, absolutely, this if, if you've got one, if you've got the budget for one, um, go with ACIS. Um, I don't think you'll regret it. And we'd love to hear from you um, if you get a copy, if you have questions about the game, um, please reach out to us. Uh, that's right. You can write to us at playedpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at playedpod. I will certainly be posting photos over the next few weeks as we play because I cannot get over how pretty this is. <laughs> I'm sorry. I feel so shallow, but I, I like a game. That's as nice to look at as it is to play. Well, Dostoevsky did say the beauty will save the world. Indeed he did. And so beauty in game components, beauty in life is a big part of what we do and how we try and do it. True. And with that thought, like I said, write to us and follow us and we will be continuing this over the next several episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening. Take care. Bye. And now, a special sneak peek of our interview with the design team for ACIS. Mm-hmm. And Fred will say, that's stupid. You're going to lose the game. I said, I don't care. I'm going to kill Wellington. <laughs> yeah. You did kill Wellington. Go ahead. No, no. But I mean, it's your point. That was a game of Wellington we played while we were designing and developing it. And you're indeed correct, Mark. You had your heart set. And you t- turn your sights on killing Wellington himself, you didn't succeed, but you lost the rest of Spain. <laughs> but, see, but, see, but see, I didn't lose the game because I killed Wellington. I lost the <laughs> game, but I did what I wanted to do. You know, and like with the, Fred was up here last year, we were playing a game of Mexican Civilization, and Fred, well, he pissed me off. Uh, and he, 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 we were, he was Rome, I was Carthage, and he took Sardinia back from me. And I said, I want Sardinia back. He says, no, no, it's mine. Well, now we're going to turn on the leader. I said, no, I want Sardinia back. <laughs> and for the rest of the game, I fought for Sardinia.
<laughs> I didn't fight to win the game. I fought just to make sure I had freaking sardinia. <laughs>